my wife and I were in um, Arizona last week, actually in, in Scottsdale, and um, it was hot. It was like the coolest it ever got was 90. I think it's really weird to go outside at one in the morning and it's 90 degrees. And we go to the pool at 10 o'clock. It was 100, and it would get to be I. It was about 114 in the day. So uh, we got two things there. We got tans and perspective. <laughs> so uh, you, know, you come back. We just come back to the Northwest and everybody's like, oh, it's, it's like 83. And, uh, so anyways, we have a little perspective about all that. But it's, it's good to be back and it's good to be with you. And uh, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for, again, for our time here this morning. And I thank you for your word to us. And Father, I, I pray as we open up your word this morning and talk a little bit about it, maybe in some ways that we don't usually talk about it, that your spirit will work in our hearts and build faith, build trust in you, and appreciation for your word. And, and I pray for us also as we just think about um, your son as the judge and what that means and what it doesn't mean for us today that you will give us great insight both into your son and into our own lives and how it is that we are to live. And so I pray for us now as we come to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen. Amen. So today is going to be a little bit different than what we usually do when we come to the word, at least for the first part of it. And that is before we talk about the story, I want to talk about the text a little bit. Um, uh, we're going to introduce this by talking about what I call the, the double brackets. And if you opened up your Bible this morning, as I read, or if you looked at it on your iDevice, you may have noticed something about the passage that I read in uh, most of your translations. And that is that it was either in double brackets, or it could have been um, in italics, or it could have had a note right above it to tell you a little bit about that. I want to just talk about that for a moment because as we as we come to the text I don't want to ignore that so as you're reading through you're like you know what, what's going on here so when we talk about the Bible there's all sorts of words that we throw around a lot and they're big words and they're deep words and they're words I can't really adequately deal with in the short time that we have just in terms of an introduction but I want to mention a few of them. Uh, one word is uh, special revelation. Okay, that's actually two words. And um, the word inspiration. And I have some notes for you, but um, when we talk about special revelation, and we get into this every now and then, um, Scripture talks about what we might call a general revelation. Sometimes we call it natural revelation. That is that God has created a world in which we can see evidence of him. Uh, we see design, we see beauty, we can see a creator. And I remember before I was a believer, um, I, I remember looking at nature and seeing evidence of God and the existence of, of someone who had created all this. It teaches us some things about God in general, and Romans it tells us, you know, talks a little, it instructs us about the eternality of God and maybe the power of God. But when, when it comes to revealing specific things about the attributes of God, the works of God, um, salvation, grace, how all that works, um, going on a hike is not going to tell you any of those things. You need revelation from God. And so God has given us revelation. We often call it special revelation or maybe specific revelation because it tells us some specific things about God. It's God's revelation to us about himself and his works and salvation. And then there's a word we use when we talk about 
revelation that we use a lot, and that's the word inspiration. And when we talk about inspiration, what we're saying is that the way that we got the scriptures that we have is that God so worked in um, men and led them and guide them, and there's a lot of different definitions of this, but God led people um, to write down, to record his words to us, and um, that word inspiration only appears really once in the New Testament, and, and we think of the word as um, inspired as, uh, technically it means breathed out. Uh, expiation is actually a more uh, technical word we'd want to use because it's the breathing out of God, the words of God, as he moved people to write the books of the Bible that we have today, actually some are books and some are, are letters. Sometimes I talk about this periodic chart if you like to kind of geek out. I know you can't really see this uh, from where you are, but this is uh, the 66 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament. It has some interesting things. Um, it's got a, how many chapters and how many verses and roughly when it was written and who wrote it. Um, and we can look at the scriptures. We've got the first five books that are written by Moses, the uh, Pentateuch. We have um, some of the historical books written by Joshua and Samuel and others. Um, we have our poetic books or our wisdom literature uh, that we have. Um, and then we have our, our prophetic books, our major prophets and our minor prophets. Our, our five major prophets, they're major prophets because they're long. They're major. And our 12 minor prophets, what do these guys get for brevity? Um, they get knocked down to the minor prophets. And then uh, we have 27 books of the New Testament. We have our Gospels, and we're going through one of those right now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have the book of Acts, which is a kind of a historical record um, of the growth, the, the birth and the growth of the church, which was originally part of the Gospel of Luke and broken off because it was so ginormous. Uh, and then we have some uh, letters. We have letters to churches, letters to individuals, book of Revelation, 66 books of the Bible. Our Bibles have 66 books. Now, um, there are uh, writings, there are books that claim to be from God. Uh, how do we know if a book is from God or, or not from God? And so through the ages, God has raised up uh, people whom he has I believe also inspired and led along to be able to recognize what books belong in the Bible and what don't. And when we talk about the 66 books of the Bible, oftentimes here's another word that you'll see and that's the word canon. We talk about the canon of scripture. If you've ever heard that term, it doesn't mean like a, a gun on a ship. It's uh, just one end. Um, canon. And it's actually, it's a generic word. It's not unique uh, to the Bible at all or even to Christianity. It's, a Gre it's from the Greek canon. Uh, Amazing, and it simply means a yardstick or a measuring rod. It's something against which you measure other things. In general, the word canon means technically a collection of texts or principles or rules that are considered to be authoritative. They are the canon in which you judge all other things. Um, so for instance, uh, if you studied literature, you might have heard that there's a thing called the Shakespeare canon. So the Shakespeare canon are simply works of Shakespeare which are, uh, have been researched and, and these are supposed to be books that were written by Shakespeare. And if anyone else comes along and says, I discovered a, another book of Shakespeare, they would measure it against the canon of Shakespeare, the works that exist, and say, oh, this looks like him, his wording or whatever, toss it out. Um, there is a canon of Western literature. So in college, maybe even high school, some of you read some of those books because it's part of the Western literature canon. Uh, a nation's constitution, bylaws, 
are also often referred to as canon because they are the thing against which the nation judges laws and rules and how people live. So canon of scripture, when we talk about a canon of scripture, we're talking about um, the written documents that are given by God, that God has revealed to us, reveals things about him and how we live together as God's people. So you'll hear that term, the, the canon of scripture. Now, there are a few what we might call, I have different terms, but one term is a, a text critical passages. And the passage that we're coming today uh, to today is one of those passages. John chapter seven, verse 53, just the last verse, and then the first 11 verses of chapter eight. And it's probably in all of your Bibles. It's in all modern translations that I can find, but it's either, and you may have noticed, it's either in double brackets. So in my Bible, uh, I know you can't read that, it looks like, it looks like this. There's two, 53, there's two um, brackets and there's two brackets right there. So when you see those, it's kind of a clue of what's going on here. So why are there brackets and what does that mean? Well, basically you may see in my Bible as well, it says this, was, uh, this passage was not part of the early document of John. So what does that mean? Let's talk about a few things here, just really uh, quick, and it, there's so much we could talk about. But when we talk about why this passage brings up red flags, there's a couple of obvious reasons. One is because it's absent from all pre-fifth century manuscripts or early church writings. It just means when we look at fragments or um, copies of the book of John pre-fifth century, this passage we're going to look at today is not there. Um, not in any of the manuscripts that we can find. Now, when it does appear in the fifth century, it's located in 10 different places, mostly in John and mostly in the passage we're looking at, or uh, predominantly in Luke chapter 21. So when it does appear, it's in different places. Um, no Greek church fathers, except one that I could find for the first thousand years, um, write anything about the passage. We don't, can't find any sermons on it, any commentary on it, and it's been noted that the style and vocabulary appear distinct from John. I don't think that's a very strong argument, but it's one that you'll, you'll typically see when you come to this. So the consensus, though, is that this was not part of the earlier original Gospel of John. That, that's one view. There is another view, if you want to get into this, uh, and that is... Uh, I shouldn't bring it up. I love talking about this stuff, but in that is that it was actually part of the original and it was taken out by scribes for all sorts of reasons that we won't get into. And then it was reinserted later on in the fifth century. There's all sorts of theories out there, but the question becomes, so why is it in your Bible when you open it up? Like, why is it there with all of this stuff? Well, let me give you a couple reasons why. First is because it's, it's orthodox. It's doctrinally consistent with Scripture. As you read it, you'll find that it matches well with the other things that Jesus taught and said in other parts of Scripture. The second reason is because it's authentic. It, it, that means it matches the criteria used to determine what Jesus really said and what he did. Any of these things on their own wouldn't be enough to include it in Scripture. But when you add these, plus the third point, which is it's historical, it was actually, even though it wasn't written down, it was, it was considered to be part of the ancient oral tradition of Jesus' life. So it was being talked about in churches, it was being taught about in churches, but it wasn't part of the Gospel of John at this point. And the fourth reason is because it's in your Bible. Uh, scholars and translators of almost every modern translation have included it in the Bible because having studied it and looked at the evidence, they've determined it belongs in the Bible, but it's in double brackets. Edward Klink 
in his commentary on John says this, and I don't know if this will or will not be helpful for you. He says, the 1,300-year use and application of this text in the church becomes a kind of ecclesial argument, if you will, uh, trusting in some limited capacity in the spirit-guided decision of the church and behind the scenes the providence of God. In other words, uh, what he's really saying is that the providence of God, in fact, was involved in it not being included until the fifth century. So double brackets mean we use it with caution. And by saying we use it with caution, what I mean is this. Typically, we'll say we use it or we teach it pastorally. Pastorally means we'll, we'll tell the story and we'll explain it and we'll apply it to our lives uh, in double brackets, as you'll see in a little bit here. And the second thing is it's always used in a secondary position of authority. So what that means is we would never take this passage all by itself and just conclude some unique doctrine or application. Now, having said that, it is done sometimes, and it's never, it never ends well when people take this passage all by itself and just come up with a bunch of doctrine and application. So we never do that, but we can use it in a secondary position of authority where we'll find other scripture that teaches things and say, hey, this kind of, this sounds like that. And we'll kind of bring it in as a, as a, as kind of a proof text, if you will. And in fact, that's exactly what we're going to do when we get to the end and, and apply this to ourselves. So there's the passage. And people say, well, how much confidence can I have that this is the word of God? And I would say, I have a lot of confidence. It's, there's a lot of scripture or there's a lot of writing that claims to be scripture that's not in the Bible because it doesn't measure up. This measures up. So it's in there, but we're going we're to walk through it carefully. So let's just think about where we are before we dive into the story. Uh, you might remember, I think about a month ago, we talked about Jesus going to the Feast of Booths. And while he was there, he taught at the temple, crowds gathered, and he claimed to speak for God. So in, in that culture that was highly tuned to spiritual things, uh, kind of unlike our culture today, when somebody came on the scene and said, hey, I'm speaking for God, in fact, I am God, I speak the very words of God, it gets people's attention. And so people would gather and people would listen to him, but people were really divided. Some said, you know, he's a good man. Some said he's a great teacher. He can work miracles. Some thought he was a prophet. Some thought he was the Messiah. Some thought he was a crazy guy and leading people astray. People are divided, but the religious leaders are not divided. They want to arrest him, and they want to shut him down. They, they wanted to arrest him, but the problem was there were the crowds were too big and he was too controversial and they just really didn't have their opportunity up to this point to arrest him publicly. And so they decide to set a trap. If they can't just outright arrest him, try him and get rid of him, they'll set a trap. And that's how we begin our story today. In chapter 7, verse 53, it says, Now they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of olives. So after the Feast of Booths, after all the drama and the conflict, um, there's kind of a, a pause. And everyone goes home and they have a snack and, and have a nap. And it says that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This is near Jerusalem. And, and in fact, it may have been his primary residence during this time. We know that uh, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus lived in that area. So maybe he was staying with them at the time. Now, early in the morning, he came again to the temple and, and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them so notice he's just right back at it early the next morning he comes right back to a place where he knew that the religious leaders were just waiting for an opportunity to arrest him and he comes right 
back. And he goes to the temple, to the area, he finds a spot, sits down, he begins to teach, and crowds gather because they're interested in what he has to say. And verse 3, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So the drama continues. Right? So he's, he's teaching, he's in the middle of class, and all of a sudden these religious leaders in their long robes, and they, they kind of march right through the group of people, and they have this woman in the middle of them, and they're kind of forcing her to come in there. Now the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the Jewish religious leaders of the day. They are people who are supposed to be leading God's people, pastoring God's people, caring for them, finding ways to bring people into the presence of God, close to God, but instead they have come up with all these man-made rules. They're considered kind of legalists, uh, and scripture says they were spiritually blind. This is the irony. These are the spiritual leaders, and they are blind. They're so blind that when God's standing right in front of them and speaking his very words, they can't recognize them because they are they're blind, and they're opposed to Jesus. They wanted to arrest him, they wanted to shut him down, but up to this point, it had just been too risky, so they decide to set a trap. They think they're smarter than Jesus, and they think that Jesus will take the bait. So they bring a woman who's been allegedly caught in the very act of adultery. Like if you just think about the background of the story itself, it's kind of crazy. They bring this woman, they forcefully march her forward, put her in front of the crowd, and say, Jesus, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery what are you going to do about it verse five they said now in the law moses commanded us to stone such a woman jesus what do you say and now this they said to test him I'm not interested in justice they're not interested in mercy none of that is important here they were trying to test him they were trying to trap him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now the seventh commandment forbids adultery. When we talk about adultery, here's a, just a basic definition. It's the voluntary sexual relations between a married or betrothed person and someone other than that person's spouse. We have a lot of synonyms today for adultery, cheating, uh, unfaithfulness, an affair. That sounds a lot better, right? But in Leviticus 20, it prescribes, in some cases, the death penalty. Not in all cases, but in some cases. Now, it required, if somebody brought an accusation that a couple were involved in adultery, it first of all required eyewitnesses. We don't actually know if there are any eyewitnesses there, but we do know this. It also involved both people. Both people had to be, the man and the woman had to be there in order for a trial to go forward. But there's no guy. In the story. Now that's left a ton of speculation, right? Where's the guy? Did, did he run? Uh, was he just, could he just outrun the, the religious leaders? Um, did they let him go on purpose? Um, was he just bait in the first place? Was the entire thing from the very beginning just, we'll just use this guy and he'll trap the woman and we'll let him go? And it really seems as you read it that, that that's what's going on. No matter how you slice this thing, and there's a lot written about this, but I'll just say this. The, the ugly fact about all this is that um, the fact that the woman is alone says a lot to us. It says a lot about the culture. It says a lot about how they treated women. We know 
that women in those days had less rights. They had uh, less of an ability to defend themselves. People have said, well, this is just another example of sexism in that culture, which you, you couldn't argue with. She's just bait in this situation and that it's disgusting the way that she's treated. All of that would be true. Nevertheless, that's what's happening here. She's standing before Jesus and they say, Moses commanded us. So they're just saying right off the top, Jesus, you have to condemn her. You have to put her to death. That's what they're expecting. Now that being said, scholars will tell us that within the Old Testament law, there was always a possibility of sacrifice for sin, even sin like this, and that God had mercy for a repentant sinner. Consider for a moment, consider King David. King David not only committed adultery, but he committed murder. In it, he never faced the death penalty. He wrote Psalm 51 that talks about God's mercy for a repentant sinner. So they, they say to Jesus, what's your opinion on this? They make it look like Jesus is the, the guest judge of the day. J- judge Judy was busy, and, and so they're like, hey, Jesus, why don't, why don't you fit in? You can stand in today. And, but the reality is that the woman isn't on trial, is she? Jesus is on trial. And it's a trap. This is what they're thinking. If Jesus lets the woman go, he'll be breaking the Mosaic law and he'll lose all credibility as a spiritual leader. So if if he lets her go, he's trapped. He's stuck. He'll lose his following. He has to. On the other hand, if he condemns her, first of all, he'd be supporting an unpopular position because we know that it wasn't even, they didn't even practice it at this point. He'd contradict his reputation of compassion and forgiveness and, and restoration. And even more than that, this would get him in trouble with the law of Rome. Because Rome did not allow uh, nations like Israel to carry out the death penalty. So he'd either get in trouble with the law of Moses or the law of Rome. And they're thinking, he cannot get out of this trap, right? We, we, we have him right where we want him. You know, I, I don't know why it made me think. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was in high school and I had all these friends who were not believers and for some reason they thought that the, the best way to um, contradict Christianity and to discredit it was to ask this really stupid question, right? Did anyone ever ask you this, right? Can God create a rock so big that he can't pick it up? You hear that? And I remember getting asked that by people and I'm a brand new Christian. I don't even know what's going on here, right? The whole thing they'd say, so, so here's the thing. If you say yes, right, that, that God can create a rock so big he can't pick it up, then you're saying that God isn't omnipotent, that he, he, he isn't all-powerful. And if you say no, then you're saying God isn't capable of, of all creative acts and that he's not impotent again and he's, he's limited. Now, of course, the answer is no because God has no limits. There's no limit to how big a rock he can create, no limit to the rock he can pick up. It's a stupid question, but it's, it's meant to tra- trap you. And that's just, this is what's going on here. As immature as it is, they think we have Jesus trapped. There's no way out for him. And then it says this, and you gotta love this. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. It'd be like being in a college class and someone asks a professor a hard question. And instead of answering the question, he just leans over the table, picks up a pen, and he's just writing down, right? And everybody's like, what's he writing, right? What's it? Just starts scribbling, it's just this uneasy silence. Now the focus a lot of times is, what was Jesus writing? Like that we, people always want to know, and commentaries are filled with, with ideas. What, what was Jesus writing with his finger 
on the ground. So the traditional um, theory that the church held for years and years and years was kind of contextual, that Jesus had just been uh, declaring that he was the living water. And in Jeremiah 17, 13, it says this, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And so for a lot of years, this was kind of the, oh, that, he's just writing that? That's beautiful, that's wonderful. A lot of other theories, though. Some say, and it's kind of one of our more favorites, is maybe he was just writing the individual sins of the people in the room one by one. Now you're gonna picture like, you know, liar, and then just kind of looking at the guy, right? <laughs> Cheater, just looking over there, right? You can just kind of imagine that. that. Another one is just that he's imitating the Roman magistrates of the day who when they would hear a case, first they would write out the verdict and then they would read it out loud. And some think it's just doodling to create some silence and some tension. But the reality is that we don't know what he was writing and as one writer says, uh, the key isn't what he wrote, the key is how he wrote. Like the point is how he wrote this down. How did he write it? He wrote it with his what? Finger. Not a trick question, by the way. He wrote it with his finger. So the theory goes like this. And it, what Jesus is doing is signaling back to Exodus 31. In Exodus 31, it tells us this. It says, And God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone, written with the what? The finger of God. And some believe that what's happening here is Jesus is signaling those who have uh, eyes to see. That he is, think about this, he is the author of the law that these men are twisting and trying to use against him. These men had turned the law into a dead set of rules that trapped and enslaved people and controlled people and Jesus comes along and says the law is filled with life the law is filled with mercy the law is filled with grace I we could teach a whole sermon I just the irony of them trying to use the word of God against God himself but going on because we don't have time for that in verse 7 and as he continued to ask him so right he's he's writing and looking down and they're like Jesus Jesus, Jesus, mom, 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 right? They're just like trying to get his attention. And he stood up and he said to them, famous words that you probably know, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus doesn't minimize the woman's guilt. He doesn't contradict the law. He simply demands a single qualification. The first person in the room to cast judgment on this woman. Actually, he doesn't say anything about the second or the third. But he's like, in order to carry this out, the first one has to be qualified. Right, doesn't that just make sense? We're, we're saying that she's guilty of something and we're going to put her to death. And Jesus just says, this is no small matter. You better make sure you got it right. You must be qualified. Only a qualified person can start this thing. After all, life is on the line. It has to be a sinless person. Verse 8, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So now, you know, he's just going to let him think about this. Imagine the peer pressure in the room. This is a group full of men who know each other. They know each other really well. They all know none of them are perfect. They all know each other's sins. Who's got the hypocrisy to pick up the first stone and throw it, right? Who's going to do that? 
Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So they leave one by one by one by one. It's a slow process, right? It's just kind of agonizing. One guy leaves, and then the next guy is like, oh, man, he left. I should probably leave, I, right? And slowly they leave, beginning with the older ones, which I find kind of interesting. The older ones were apparently the first ones to recognize the truth of the situation and being willing to humble themselves and, and leave. Some people have called it a walk of shame. As one person put it, those who had come to shame Jesus now leave in shame. And when it's done, Jesus is alone with the woman. He's the only one who met the qualification to judge. The only one. And then Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. That term woman, by the way, is a respectful term in those days. He's been respectful to her, and, and he says, you know, here's my verdict. What is his verdict? The only one qualified to render a verdict in that room, and he says he does not condemn her. R.C. Sproul put it this way, Jesus said to her the sweetest words that any human being could ever hear from his lips. Neither do I condemn you. Now, Jesus didn't say she wasn't guilty. We, don't, we actually don't know anything about that, right? We don't really know the backstory, but we know this. We know that he did not condemn her. The gospel is this thing that harmonizes both the justice of God and the mercy of God. I don't know if you've ever thought a lot about that. Like, how can a perfectly just God just forgive people for believing in his son? And, and we tend to think, kind of in this way, we, we tend to think that God has to punish the Hitlers of the world, right? I mean, God wouldn't be a good God if he didn't punish the Hitlers. You've got to do that, right? They're terrible people, and you, you can't just let them go. But we also tend to think that we're in a different category than the Hitlers of the world, right? We're not, I mean, maybe we've told a few lies. Maybe we cheated a few times. Maybe we got hangry once you know, got a little impatient and were rude, but we're not murderers, right? We, we've never done anything like that. Here's the thing. True justice sees all sin for what it is. Not just big sin and little sin, and, uh, but all sin is sin to God. There's a sense in which all sin is not the same, but all sin is sin in the bottom line in that it separates us from God. All sin is a rejection of God's rightful place in our life. It's us saying, no, God, I'm, I'm not going to do what you say, and I'm going to do what I want in this situation. So the question becomes, how can God be perfectly just? How can God be the perfect judge and deal with sin and, and evil appropriately and also be merciful to people who, who trust in him? And, of course, we know that it's found in the gospel. We talk about this all the time. The answer is Jesus. In Romans 3.23, it really lays this out for us. It says, for all of sin. So right off the top, Paul says, so let's just admit we're all in the same category, right? They're not, some of you are not better than others in this sense. We are all sinners, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, of God's standard for us, and we are justified. That is, we are made right or justified before God by His grace as a gift. So that's great, but how do we get the grace? How do we get the gift of righteousness from God? Well, it's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. So the point is that Jesus went to the cross 
where he suffered, where he died, where he shed his blood. He was buried. He rose from the dead. And this was to show God's righteousness. He says before that, that we receive it by faith. So when we trust in God, God gives us a righteousness. Jesus paid the price for our sin. There is a penalty for sin, and that penalty is death. Jesus died for our sin, and thus satisfied the justice of God. Once the justice was allowed, then that meant that you and I could receive the grace and the mercy of God. Paul goes on and he says this, it was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be, and I love this, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just means that he is the perfect judge in every situation in which judgment is rendered. It also means he's the justifier that it is through Christ that we are made right before God. The gospel brings these two things together. God not only judges sin, he is the one who has received the punishment for our sin, and we access that through faith. So Jesus responds to her, and I love this. He says, go and sin no more. So she's free to go, but not without qualification. He says she is to go with a new kind of life to go with a new kind of focus, to no longer be characterized by sin, but by what is right. Now, when we read it and we understand the context, right, a good, you know, kind of a good observation might be this. He's sending her out to do something she can't do in her own power if we, we understand what he's saying correctly. But we also know the way this story goes. We know that in the near future, Jesus will be crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascend. And he will send the Holy Spirit to believers and making possible in us what is impossible for us without the Holy Spirit. Now we are new creations. We are empowered by the Spirit to live holy lives. That's what's coming here. But he says, not just, you know, go and he says, go and, and sin no more. Go and have a new kind of life. So what do we, what do, we do with this? Right? How do we apply this short story to our lives within double brackets, if you will. And so what I want to do is, well, there's a lot of observations that have been made in application. I only want to make two, and they're really obvious. This is like low-lying fruit uh, when we want to stay in the double brackets. And the first is this, that Jesus alone is judged. He's the only one left standing in this story. He's the only one qualified to judge, and nothing has changed. He is still judge. In, in John 5, 22, it tells us this. For the Father judges no one, Jesus says, but has given all judgment, all judgment to who? The Son, right? In 2 Timothy 4, 1, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and, and the dead. Everyone will stand before Christ as judge according to our faith or our unbelief. Jesus alone is judge. So to put a fine point on it, I'll put it this way. Jesus alone is, is judge. As a believer, as a, as a believer in Christ, you have not been independently sanctioned to be a judge. And what I mean by that is this. You have not been commissioned to go out and come up with your own interpretation of Scripture your own list of reasonings and standards for other people and then judge everyone by them. Right? And we do this in a lot of different ways. Uh, I went to a Christian college uh, and it was very conservative 
and I know it was a long time ago when I was in college, but I, so I came from a family of non-believers. So I was raised that every Christmas, every Thanksgiving, every holiday, even on Easter, we'd have something to eat, and then uh, a, a card game would break out. And there would be, you know, gambling and betting and all that stuff. That's the culture of my family. So I went to the school, and one of the rules I read was you weren't allowed to have playing cards on campus. So I, I was super confused by this. So I remember going and asking a counselor, and they're like, well, it's obvious, isn't it? I'm like, no. And they're like, well, if you have playing cards, then you might play cards. And if you play cards, you might play poker. And if you play poker, you might bet, right? So, you know, we just, so we don't have playing cards because you might bet and lose everything you have. That, that was the reasoning. Is that in the scriptures? No. This, but somebody somewhere along the line took scriptures and just, they came up with some of their own rules and then applied it to everyone else, like an entire college full of people. Uh, here's another one. And I, 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 I hate mentioning this in some ways, but alcohol is another one, especially in the tradition I, I kind of grew up in as a Christian once I became a believer. And as I went to a lot of churches where it, all the time was preached, Christians don't drink alcohol. Uh, they don't drink alcohol because if they drink alcohol, they might drink too much alcohol, and if they drink too much alcohol, then they might get drunk, and if they get drunk, then they won't be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, Scripture says that we should never be controlled by alcohol, but does Scripture say that we can't drink alcohol? No, it doesn't say that. But the church has been full of people who go around and go, well, I just don't think it's wise to play pinochle or to uh, drink a glass of wine, so we just don't do that, and they judge one another that way. Okay, we are not judges. We don't go around making up our own extra rule. That's what Pharisees do. That's what legalists do. Here's what we do. We submit to the judge, the one and only judge. When he judges that something is right, then we agree with it. It's right. If he says something is good, then we agree with it. It's good. We don't deviate from it. We don't twist it into our own definition of what is right and wrong. We agree with what he says in his judgments. When he says something is sin, then it's just sin. When he says it's good, then we agree with it. When he says it's wise or it's foolish, what he forgives, we forgive. Put it this way, we are stewards of the judgments of God that he's given to us in Scripture, but we are not the judges. There's a difference. We are the stewards of the judges, but we are, uh, judgments, we are not the judges. He alone makes judgments. We carry them out in our lives, and, and we proclaim them to others. Jesus, in this story, stands alone as the one who is qualified to judge. You are not the judge. I'm not the judge. It's not your spiritual gift. I meet sometimes people who think it's their spiritual gift, you know. Pastor, I just, I, uh, I'm really good at judging people. That's always a bad sign, right, when somebody tells you that, right? Only God can condemn. Only God can forgive. Only God can set free. Don't be foolish. You can't do any of those things. But you can agree with the judge. Live those out and proclaim them. He is the one who pronounces judgments, and we embrace them. That's the first thing. It's obvious. It's simple. Here's the second thing, and this is a little more in line with uh, kind of applying it to us today, and that is we must always start with ourselves when it comes to judgment. The goal of announcing the judgments of God. So, you know, we have been called to proclaim the truth of God. And when we proclaim the truth of God in the gospel to the world around us, sometimes it sounds a little judgy, doesn't it? Like when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. And we talk about things like heaven and hell and judgment. The goal of announcing judgment to other people, the goal of calling out sin in the lives of other people, 
It's not to judge them, it's to help them. That maybe they might receive the mercy of God. It's not to judge them, you understand it. And I, I think sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we like to judge things because we secretly love the fact that that person is maybe condemned. But that's not what God has called us to do. So Jesus tells the crowd, basically, think about the story again. What, he, what is he saying? He's saying before you judge someone else, before you pronounce judgment on someone else, before you condemn someone else, or attempt to help someone else, you must judge yourself first. Isn't that what he's calling them to do? Judge yourself before you judge someone else. You cannot point out the sins of others in a helpful way. And that's the goal, by the way. In a helpful way, so that maybe they might see their sin and repent and turn to God. You can't do that if you're not honest about dealing with your own sin. And it all sounds weirdly familiar, doesn't it? It all sounds like another story Jesus told. In Matthew chapter 7, he says this, speaking about sin, he says, why do you see the speck? that is in your brother's eye. But you do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and there is a great big log in your own eye. You hypocrite. Now notice what he says. First, first take the log out of your own eye and then, and then secondly, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In this story, it talks about a, a, a speck and a log. That word for speck in the Greek, karphos, is just a, a dry twig or a little piece of straw. And the word log there is literally a timber or a beam. All right? So he's talking about like somebody's got a big beam sticking out of their forehead, right? And they're, they're walking around all judgy, looking at everyone. Oh, you have a speck in your eye. Let me, come, let me come help you. What happens when you have a big log sticking out of your forehead? What happens? You turn around and you knock things over and, and you try to get close to the other person and you bonk them in the head and you can't, right? You do more harm than good. Like, that's literally true, isn't it? When you have a log sticking out of your face and you're trying to help other people, you're doing more damage than you're doing good. Now, you need to understand this. The point to the law guy story isn't what some people do, which some people think what Jesus is saying is nobody's perfect, so you have no place ever trying to help someone else deal with their own sin. That is not what he's saying. He's saying the opposite. He's saying you should care so much about the people around you. You should care so much about your spouse. You should care so much about your kids, your neighbor and the people around you so much that you want to help them. You want to help them deal with their sin. So, the first thing you do is repent of your own sin. Be humble. Confess it. Receive forgiveness. That way you can help them. That's the point. The point is you want to help them. So before you can help them, you need to deal with it in your own life. And then when you do that, you'll be able to help them. Why? Because when you deal with the log in your eye, then you'll be keenly aware of the fact that you are not perfect, right? Because you had to confess your imperfection. You had to humble yourself. You had to ask for forgiveness from God. You realize that you were a sinner saved by grace. You are no better than that person with the speck in their eye, and you need God's mercy and grace as much as anyone else, and this will motivate you to go out and help other people in a way that's helpful to them, not just judge you, but helping them. That's the goal. The goal is mercy in their life. That's the goal. The goal isn't I'm going to go out and just judge a whole bunch of people. The goal is I want them to know the mercy I have known. 
So we deal with it in our lives. As a pastor, I get this sometimes. Sometimes people will come to me and say, Pastor, you know, you don't, you don't judge enough. They don't actually put it in those words, but it's pretty much what they're saying. And over the last four years especially, you know, like I've had people come up and say, you know, you don't talk, about, you don't talk enough in sermons about voting. You should really be talking about like the candidate to vote for and that, you, Pastor, you don't really do that. You don't condemn enough. You need to condemn some people by name. Or they'll say like, you know, you'd, I had people say, you didn't condemn enough on masks or not masking or whatever. And even the vaccines the other day, I had a conversation with somebody who's like, you know, Pastor, I'm really disappointed because you really should have criticized people about, I'm not going to say either way, but, you know, vaccinating or not vaccinating. We didn't hear you talk about that enough in sermons. You know, you should have done that or people's entertainment choices or what people drink or don't drink or where they shop. Some people are still shopping at Target. Pastor, you haven't talked about that or, you know, some social issue or how they school their children. I have people sometimes who come and say, what they want is, it's not enough for them to judge people in their head. They want somebody from up here to judge them as well. And the goal, by the way, isn't so that people experience mercy and grace. They just want to see people judged. That is what the Pharisees were doing here. We don't want to be Pharisees. We don't want to be scribes. We want to be like Jesus. Jesus had mercy in mind. He had mercy in mind. So we start with ourselves. We start with our own sin, our own pride, our own hypocrisy. But we deal with it. We deal with it so that we can help the people around us. Help them understand where the sin is in their life. But, right, but the goal is that they'll have mercy. Not just that we're going around judging people. So here's a big question to, to end with. What log do you have sticking out of the front of your face, right? If, and this is always tough because I think a lot of times when we look in the mirror, there's like something about it we can't see. You could probably look around right now, some people around you, and you could see the log sticking out of their face. You like know what it is, but it's so hard sometimes to self-diagnose. Maybe it's anger. Maybe you just have an anger problem, and your anger problem is making it impossible for the people around you to really listen to you. Why would they listen to you? You have an anger problem, stuff comes out of your mouth, you react, maybe you get violence, maybe you beat people down verbally, but it's just, you, you've lost all credibility. You've got a log sticking out of your face. Right? Don't you love the people around you? Don't you want to help them? You've got to deal with the anger. Maybe it's pride. You know, Pride's an ugly thing. Maybe it's greed, gossip. Maybe it's just hypocrisy or lying. or Maybe it's lust. Maybe nobody else knows about it, but you know, God knows make it impossible for you to really be helpful to other people. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's your vocabulary under certain stressful situations. Maybe you're just spiritually indifferent or lazy. You don't read your Bible. You don't pray. It comes out. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's you're doing something illegal. I say that. There's almost a chance for sure that there's somebody in here doing something illegal right now. Uh, maybe you have an unforgiving spirit, bitterness towards someone or something. Just what is keeping you from being able to help the people that you love because you've got a big log sticking out of your face? Get, if you want to get the speck out of their eye, you've got to deal with the log in your eye. So what is it? Like I just encourage you to be very specific. Write it down. Say it out loud. Confess it to someone. 
put the stones down that you've been throwing at other people and get right with God. God wants you to be a blessing. God wants you to be an instrument of, of encouragement in the lives of other people. God wants to use you to be able to help people get beyond their sin. But if God's going to use you, you have to be prepared. And when you're not prepared, it's just, you know, I was thinking about, uh, so I'll just close with this. When I started college, I was going to a Christian college and I moved from California to Phoenix and I started attending this really small church in town. And because I was going to Bible college, I was automatically made the director of youth ministry, which was like eight kids and at the time. And um, Bill Gothard had just come through with Basic Youth Institutes, and um, if you're familiar at all with that, you know, a little bit. I had some people out in the last service come up and go, man, that was like a trigger, I, you know. But anyway, so I kind of followed on the tails of that, and um, so this mom, this single mom in church, um, says to me, hey, I'd love to have you come over for dinner this week, and, you know, with my son, and get to know David and stuff, and I was like, great. I, I thought, this is awesome. This is great. I didn't know it was a trap, you know. So I, anyways, I, I, I go to their house, and I'm just brand new in this stuff, and I, we sit down to dinner, and we start to eat, and then the mom says, oh, one minute, and she gets up, and she comes back, and she just drops a big stack of records in the middle of the dining room table, and then sits back down and says, you know, um, my son has been listening to this music, and I need you to tell him to stop listening to this and we have a burn barrel in the back and we need to take this stuff and go burn it right now so what do you say and she's looking at me right so I start leafing through the albums there's like uh, Larry Norman and Striper and <laughs> Petra and <laughs> Resurrection Band you know and it's Christian music, but it's, you know, of the devil because it, it had drums and electric guitar in it. And I just, you know, I, rem I remember sitting there trying to figure, it was a, felt like a trap. And I, you know, I knew if I didn't go burn these, she was going to go tell the pastor, you got a liberal running youth ministry. And if I did it, I was going to lose all credibility with the kids and probably with God too. So I, and it, but here was the problem. She was a gossipy, judgy, bitter unforgiving person with a huge beam sticking out of her face and everyone knew it everyone knew this about her she's sitting across the table from her son she isn't thinking about mercy she isn't thinking about grace she just is thinking uh, she's got this gigantic log that she can't see and I remember telling her and I you know I mean, I was in college, so I did know everything, but I remember, like, telling her, I think, you know, why don't you, I told her, son, why don't you go out and, you know, let me talk to your mom, and I remember just telling her, like, I, you have to decide, do you want to help him, or do you just want to judge the world, because you can't do both, and that's true for all of us, and we could say more, but, you know, I think this is a thing we really have to wrestle with in our own lives, right? We love people around us. We want to help people around us. We want to represent the gospel rightly. We got to deal with the, the log sticking out of our face. We got to remember there is only one judge. It's not you. It's not me. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for this passage. You know, and I thank you for the opportunity to talk a little bit about the fact that, that your word has undergone incredible scrutiny scholarship and and we have every reason to have confidence 
in our Bible when we open it up. But Father, when we read this passage, this is challenging. This kind of strikes at our, at our core in so many ways. And Father God, I, I imagine that every one of us in this room have people in our lives that we love, that we care about. They might be sitting right next to us. We might go home to them today. We care about them, but they're not perfect. They got some, you know, dust in their eyes. They got some sin they need to deal with. And, but we're not ready to help them. We're not qualified to help them because we haven't even dealt with our own sin. Father God, I pray that you would give us the heart of Jesus who proclaimed truth and proclaims judgment on all things, but does so with the goal of mercy in mind, if at all possible, if at all possible, that people would receive grace and not judgment. I pray for us, Father, that we would have that motivation as well. That we'd have the eyes of Christ. That we would lay down the, the gavel of judgment and let Jesus be the judge. And we would be those who embrace his judgment. And first in our lives, Father God, help us to see what are the logs in our eyes that are keeping us from helping others. Help us to see it. Help us have the courage to admit it, to confess it, and to repent of it, to repent, to turn around, to walk away from that and walk toward you, to go and sin no more. That's a hard thing, but Father, through your Spirit, we can grow and get beyond the logs that are in our eyes. And so I pray for that today. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, 